Dr. Jessica Elizabeth Isom is an early career community psychiatrist, public speaker, medical educator, and consultant for diversity, equity, inclusion in anti-racism projects. Dr. Isom draws on her psychiatric training and humble background to connect across differences in power, education, and perspective to foster a collaborative approach to achieving racial justice and equity in medicine and beyond. She gives us a framework for addressing racist patients, family members, and guests. Now, this is a three-step process and works in many situations. You call it out, leverage the institution, and set a limit on the behavior. Interrupt, educate, set limit. She also gives us ways to address racist language from attending to attending or even trainee to attending. We also discuss when it's actually okay for a patient to request a physician of a certain gender or racial background and times when it is absolutely not okay. Dr. Isom is currently an attending psychiatrist at Codman Square Health Center in Boston, where she is providing expertise on anti-racist transformation of staff and programming with a specific focus on the opioid use disorder services. She received her MD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she also received her MPH with a focus on public health leadership. She currently serves as a leader within the American Psychiatric Association Assembly, representing early career psychiatrists, and has been elected to the counselor position for the Massachusetts Psychiatric Society. Currently, she's devoting considerable time to growing her consulting company, Vision for Equity. That's vision, number four, equity.com, where she intends to expand into a nationally sought-out team of anti-racism coaches and organizational trainers. She can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Jess Isom, I-S-O-M, M-D-A, M-P-H. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's not a secret that we physicians have a hard time creating a professional-looking digital presence. I outsourced mine. Having a dynamic website, ranking in Google, or growing your volume of patient reviews are not easy tasks. We're too busy to figure it out on our own. Over the last 20 years, Advice Media has developed the Pyramid of Success to help physicians do just this. Do you want to attract more patients, generate more calls and emails, enhance brand awareness, protect your online reputation? Schedule a demo with Advice Media to learn how. On top of that, receive a $60 Amazon gift card just for chatting with them. Three in five patients will choose one provider over another because of a strong online presence. Are you making sure you're the one who stands out? So don't delay booking your demo today. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash advicemedia that's drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. Dr. Jessica Isom, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yes, thanks for having me, Brad. I'm happy to be here to talk about this important topic. Before we get to that important topic, on a somewhat related note, tell us about your new company, this new venture of yours. Yeah, I took the plunge last year and decided to turn what I've been doing already in a piecemeal fashion throughout my training and then in my attending hood to just turn that into a consultation company. Because what I realized is that I was doing talks around the country and often doing some trainings with smaller groups related to my work. I found that there was a really receptive audience to that and that there's a gap for that in medicine in particular. So I took the pandemic time last year to say, if there's any year to start, this is the year. So late last year, I 
launched the company silently, but went more public a couple weeks ago to finally say, hey, we're here and we're really interested in supporting organizations and individuals in their anti-racism and racial equity work. It sounds to me like this is work that you are being asked to do already for free, often. And now what you're saying is, we can offer these services, but it's time to start actually monetizing it too. It's time to get paid for doing all this work rather than just doing it for free. Yeah. And the larger point here is that to do anything for free requires you to work (laughs) really hard in other areas. So the only way to make this work sustainable is to make it a part of what I do for an income. That's a piece of it. The other piece of it too is the company itself allows me to say, hey, this is something that's really relevant to the work that we're doing already. There are resources out there to help us do that work better. Invite me in, just like you invite other people in to do other kinds of complicated work. For example, we do consultations around types of therapy or consultations around how to make sure that we in surgery are going for the right organ or the right leg. We think about consultations in that way, but we often don't confront the elephant in the room of how can we address racism and how. So it's also interesting to see how people respond to the same kind of consultation just on a different topic. And the response has actually been pretty positive so far. Wonderful. Plug the name. What's it called and where can people find it? Yeah, so it's Vision for Equity, and it's really around helping people, one, apply a new lens to actually see the world for what it is, which is a racially structured society, specifically in the U.S., and then equity is the goal. We'll help you figure out a roadmap to get there. And you can go to www.visionforequity.com to find out more information and reach out to our team. And if anyone's wondering like what my style is and my approach, they could just Google and they'll find some stuff out there. But I also have on the website some prior presentations and publications that give people a flavor for how I approach the topic. And listening to this episode. Yes, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what we're going to be talking about today is how to respond to racist patients families, and guests when we're in the clinical setting. This podcast is primarily physician audience. And I myself, I've encountered it, just for those who can't see me, I'm white. So it's not often that I've, and I've actually never encountered it towards me, but when I did, I had no idea what to do. So we're going to just start with the basics, right? So you have a patient who says something that is overtly racist. Give us a framework for where to even begin. Yeah, I mean, overtly suggest that everybody would recognize it. And I think there's like some (laughs) examples of overt racism that most people would appreciate, like use of a slur. But there are examples of slurs that a lot of people are ignorant to. So I would say the first place to start is being prepared to recognize even overt racism and not underestimate the ways that it presents itself. Because explicitly demonstrating a racist belief or attitude or behavior could be something like Assuming that a staff member that you're working with is a foreigner or an immigrant, it could be asking if staff speak English or if the staff are quote-unquote American. It could be questioning the educational background, specifically of racialized minorities that are providing care to you or suggesting that they are just affirmative action hires. And some of these things might sound like innocent questions if someone's not attuned to what the underlying racism is in those statements. So overt suggests that we know Uh, collectively, but a lot of times we don't. It's not just the patient with the swastika tattoo that's insisting on a a white male doctor. It might be the little old lady that innocently asks if they're going to see a doctor when they've been seeing the female African-American doctor. And that goes back to this lens question of can you really see? And that question of can you really see 
racialized minorities is a real one. I've acted in care settings and been having a great rapport with a patient who will then say, where's the doctor? Or forget that we had the conversation and I was the doctor. So this automatic assumption that the person you're speaking to, despite their white coat, despite their badge, despite their level of really articulation around your medical concerns, they might conclude that you're just not just, but you are in a helping profession in the hospital system. So it's very interesting. But I will say, how do you respond in the moment? I mean, one is to acknowledge that it happens and it depends on who you are. And a lot of times it relates to what power you have in that space, how you might respond. So it's a little bit nuanced, but the first thing to know is that you should respond. Something should be said and it's who am I and what power do I have in this space and how can I leverage that power in this moment? Let's like kind of deescalate. Mm-hmm. Let's start with attending. So you're the attending mm-hmm. physician. The buck stops with you. But I guess we should even break it down from there. That you're the attending and the patient says something about you. Mm-hmm. From there, we'll go, let's say you're the attending, but the patient says something about someone else, either one of your trainees or one of the staff members. So first, let's say yeah. you're the attending, patient says something about the attending. Yeah. And I think from there, one is a recognition piece. Two is it's often best to come prepared with a a communication script, like something that you already know you're going to say, because it's easier to roll off the tongue, especially when you are having an emotional and sometimes physical reaction to what was offered by that patient. So of course you have to interrupt what was said. That means saying something about what was said and naming it as offensive, naming it as harmful. And then you can leverage the institution and what its values are. So here at XYZ Hospital or XYZ Clinic, it's important that we all have respect for everyone, including our staff. And then you have to set a limit on their behavior. And that language or what you've just offered cannot be tolerated as a part of respecting those institutional values. And that last part, the setting the limit on the behavior, is the part that people often shy away from. But that setting a limit is what can actually change behavior in the future. And of course, this is all happening, especially if it was me, for example, in this moment, all happening while I'm already experiencing a reaction to what was stated. So it can be very difficult to be the person who's the recipient of that verbal assault to respond. But I will also acknowledge for people who are not used to calling out that behavior and holding people accountable, it can be difficult for them as well. And that's why having that speech interrupt, educate about values, and then set firm limits on that behavior, that's really important to come into in these situations with already. Okay. So three-pronged approach, just to go over it one more time, call it out, mm-hmm. leverage the institution, and then set a limit on behavior. Or you'll also put it interrupt, mm-hmm. educate, and then set limits. Exactly. Exactly. You're a position. Like you are a power. <laughs> you're an authority, what you say matters. And if we're thinking about the team structure, let's say you're working with a student or working with a nurse, or if in this room, this comment was made about a support staff, whether it be like a patient care assistant or someone who's picking up trays, you are the person that people look to determine how they navigate that space. So your offering is just so much more powerful than other people in that room. That's just the way that it is. That's the way that medicine is structured. Ultimately, no matter who it is, they're likely going to be looking to you to say something, right? To do something in that moment. It sounds like that formula <laughs> it takes apart some of my questions because my questions were going to be, does it matter what race the patient is? Does it matter what race the doctor is? Does it matter whether it's a trainee or an attending or a staff member? But correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like interrupt, educate, set limit really works in all of those situations. Because one of the things that might come up that people may call racist across the board 
is if a patient makes a request for a particular kind of physician. So let's say there's a person who's requesting white-only care. There's so many layers to that request. So one of the things that the frameworks that different hospitals have across the country, not many, but a few, is they have a way of asking a question about whether or not this request is rooted in bigotry or not. And that matters because bigotry means it's defined as having some kind of unreasonable belief or prejudice about a person or a group of people just based on their membership in that group. So requesting a white-only doctor is a part of this white supremacist ideology that white is good, white is right, white is the best. So requesting a white-only doctor by most people would be considered something rooted in bigotry. However, having race concordance, having a doctor who is the same racial group as you, particularly for racialized minorities, so for example, a Black patient requesting a Black doctor is not exactly the same because there are many very complicated reasons why having that race concordance might be the only way that person could access the kind of care that they're looking for. So it doesn't quite apply across the board. I think in a lot of scenarios it would. But a really a big part of this is where is that specific request for a type of vision coming from? Is it rooted in bigotry or is it rooted in some acknowledgement of the context of our nation's history, et cetera? Wow. Yeah. As you were saying that if a patient asks for a white only care, you said most. I don't even understand how there could be a counter argument or you just made the counter argument, which is specifically for minoritized patients. This does not apply. And here are the reasons why. Or is someone out there saying, no, I think it's perfectly reasonable and saying that in a public non-white supremacist forum? Yeah, I think it's more so what is the root of the request? And specifically at Yale, I was around when they were developing their policy for managing patients who were discriminatory towards staff members. And a part of their algorithm, and I left a couple of years ago clinically, so I'm not sure if this is the form of policy yet, but it was on its way. A part of their algorithm, a part of their staff training was figure out what's the root of the request. So again, asking questions, being curious might reveal that the root of that request is, is just bigotry. It's just ignorance. There's nothing about it that's rooted in a context or a history. It's just, I only want care from white doctors because white doctors are the best. That's a lot different than I've had prior healthcare experiences as a Black patient that were, for example, discriminatory in nature, or I've heard stories my entire lifetime about how white doctors might be harmful based on the legacy of medical racism. I am the best patient when I'm working with someone who is the same race as me or who is non-white. So that curiosity can get with the patient actually asking them questions and exploring where they're coming from can reveal whether or not it's bigotry, of course, is a certain way of responding versus it being a request rooted in some kind of context or history. The same thing might go for patients saying, I can only work with physicians who are women. And that could be rooted in some kind of modesty that's related to Facebook. And the only way that you would know that is if you express curiosity and ask, what's the root of this request? And I think the same thing applies here, also depending on the situation. <laughs> so if you were in an emergency situation, you might not have the same time that you would have on the floor when a patient has been stabilized. So yeah. there's a lot of moving pieces here. That individual could have a trauma history, yeah. Exactly. I think respecting that patients are people, that patients have had past experiences, it requires us to be curious about where they're coming from. And I think there's always time to ask that question, whether or not they're able to verbalize the root of their request story. But asking can help determine is this bigotry-based or not. And the algorithms that are out there, some of them will say if it's bigotry-based, it's a request that will not be honored. And again, there's a lot here. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but there are ways of navigating that, that respect that the employee can't be discriminated against and that the patient also has a right to get care from who they're comfortable with. 
And this is why having some kind of algorithm and training can be really helpful because they're sticky situations. So the patient might have difficulty articulating why they're choosing a specific type of doctor. That sounds like any time that a patient comes in with a history of a complaint, right? Like we're doctors. This is what we do. We navigate trying to help the patient articulate the problem that they're having. It sounds like we're well-suited if a patient comes in and they're like, well, I'm not sure why, to help them figure it out, right? Yeah, I guess it depends. I think because we're also healthcare workforce that's majority white, a signature um, racial group. And we have to acknowledge that different racial groups are socialized into their racial identity in different ways. And one thing about white racial socialization and the literature that supports that is that there's a real discomfort around seeing race and talking about race. So if you have a physician who's colorblind and has colorblind racial ideology and is color mute, meaning they don't really talk about race, it can be really difficult in that moment for them to work through what can I say in this situation as someone who doesn't often explicitly talk about race or racism. And I think that's why a lot of people freeze. It's, oh my God, <laughs> like we're not supposed to talk about this. We're not supposed to say things about this. And sometimes people can like recover and say, that's not right. You know, in very simple, short responses, or that's not okay. Or I trust and respect that physician who just so happens to be an Asian American. I would, you know, trust them with my life. You should as well. And we're all a team. People can say things like that. Um, but sometimes when it's a, a bit more nuanced or requires more elaboration, people will struggle who themselves have not really embraced conversations about race and racism before. That's an excellent point. I'm skilled at navigating when a patient says that they're dizzy, but they're having trouble articulating what exactly that means, because I do that mm -hmm. all the time. These are conversations that I just don't have. And so when I encounter them, even though I'm good at figuring out what patients are saying when they say they're dizzy, it doesn't mean that I'll be able to navigate that situation. Yeah, it's complicated. And I'll also say patients can have conversations about their requests. You can discuss options with them, even if it's rooted in bigotry. For example, I've had physicians who minoritized persons say, I'm the only one you got. Like it's 12 midnight, it's the emergency room. There is no other physician here except for me. What are you going to do? And the patient has to accept that's the reality of the situation. And I think also, humanizing how that offered request impacts the physician is important as well. And sometimes I don't know if patients are able to recognize the humanity of that physician. And that could be something offered as well. That was probably really painful to hear because doctor is a really excellent physician and prides themselves on taking care of their patients. And that kind of might produce for the patient some empathic connection with the physician and might open them up more to actually receiving care from them. And they might learn that, hey, non-white physicians are excellent physicians too. <laughs> like they exist. So a teachable moment in lots of ways. And it sounds like it can be the flip side as well, right? Let's say you're the ENT on call for the hospital, a black patient comes in and they request a black ear, nose and throat doctor, but I'm the only thing they've got for me to mm -hmm. take the time to ask them why and acknowledge the history of their request and help them walk through it. Even if I'm not able to offer them another doctor might help them. A little empathic listening goes a long way. I think so. And just validating that it took a lot for them likely to even come in the first place. A large part of delays in care for demographics that have been harmed by medicine are rooted in that history. There could be an acknowledgement of, sorry, there's no other staff here that has a similar background to you. I can understand how it impacts your ability to receive care. And also, I can understand why me, this person sitting in front of you, you might have some hesitation about. But 
what I'm going to do is the best job I possibly can in working with you. And I encourage you to give me feedback on how I'm doing throughout this process. So it's really being humble about you yourself as an individual. It's not just about you. It's about everything, the history, prior experiences of that patient and healthcare interaction, all that has to be accounted for. So yes, empathic listening goes a long way as well as offering validating statements. At the beginning, we were talking about more microaggressions, right? Would those be considered microaggressions or those are just straight up aggressions? That's the thing. It's so hard because language can be very powerful and language can change over time. And what I will say is this, Chester Pierce, Dr. Chester Pierce, a black psychiatrist, is the person who invented the term microaggression. And I think it would be really helpful in conversations about microaggressions to look at what he described them as. Because I think over time, the harm within these interactions is mostly intellectually appreciated and and lived experience appreciated by those who've been a target of them, not necessarily the perpetrators of them. And I think a part of that is in the language. So if you go back to Chester, Dr. Chester Pierce in the 1970s, he described microaggressions as these continuous bombardment of aggression specifically aggression, that negatively impacted interracial contact because essentially they were in two forms. They were gross, so they were dramatic and obvious, such as like lynching, for example, or they were covert. And those covert ones are not small. They're not micro. They're just daily. And and that means that micro is like a sociological term, as in they're happening daily and happening often. And I think we stopped talking about macroaggressions. And we've kept talking about microaggressions, but lost that initial way of describing what they, so I think it's, so I, 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 so I, I used I like it completely to, wrong. No, not wrong. But I think when we say microaggression, it's important to think about how it's being heard. Yeah. So a part of me is tempted to say, these are, these are aggressions, right? They are interactions that contain aggression. And as a psychiatrist, I'm much more comfortable saying aggression that doesn't necessarily involve a punch. That, that's often what we think about. Aggressions are harm. And I think in these conversations, it's really useful to talk about the data, about how these impact the target, because that helps people to understand that it's not something that's small and dismissible, but that actually has detrimental consequences for people's physical and mental health. So aggression is racial aggression or racial verbal assault. We're just calling it racism <laughs> would be really helpful. But racism as a term is often not really understood either. <laughs> so the language piece is really hard. So you're okay, but I tend to get like verbose because there's so much to unpack even just with that one word. So then how do I ask this question? Because I think from the perspective of the patient, right? So let's change it so that it's the intent of the patient, right? The intent Mm -hmm. of the patient is not to outright insult the caregiver. Is the response different? That's what I'm getting at. Let's say you have a patient who is actively trying to harm the caregiver, whereas someone is just thinking that what they're saying is not harmful, but is the response to those two situations the same or is it different? Yeah, and what I would say is either way, as far as the impact on the person that this comment was directed towards, no. Personally, I can tell you if it's intentional or not intentional, it still hurts the same, right? So there's a piece of this that uh, is, is the same as far as how you might respond to the person who has been the target of that comment. And that means creating space to acknowledge that harm occurred and asking them what they need. What support do you need right now after that comment to do whatever you need to do? As far as the person that you're speaking to, I also think maybe the firmness of the boundary setting might be different. 
maybe it's a question of is this person if they're intentional about it going to be receptive to just a gentle redirection or not and I don't know (laughs) it might be person dependent but a lot of the responding to microaggressions specifically in this umbrella term of micro interventions which are ways of responding to microaggressions a lot of it can involve education. So for the person who's doing it on purpose, I guess might be a way of describing, maybe they don't need education because they're conscious of what they're offering. But for the person who may have said something like unintentionally didn't really recognize it, that education could be really useful. But there are people who are just very insistent on what they want, rude and bigotry, for whom education might not be as effective. And it really has to be around setting boundaries, again, mentioning those values and presenting them with options. Either you treat our staff here with respect because this conduct is unacceptable, or we might have to transfer your care. And the algorithms do include the option to do that, of course, if the patient's stable enough to um, tolerate that, that if they can't be respectful, if they're intentionally being harmful, that they, they might have to transfer care if there's a policy. If there's not a policy, they might be screaming the N-word down the hallway for hours and people might just tolerate it, which is very sad. So that was actually going to be my next question. When can you fire a patient? And is that, it sounds like that is a policy that each institution has to decide, although there there are probably legal parameters there as well. Yeah, yeah, there are. And I'm not as much familiar with the legalese. I do know from some of the policies I've seen that have gone past lawyers' eyes that there is a way to, again, not in like an emergency or trauma situation, but there is a way to, to, to explain to the patient what are the institutional values, what are the policies here around staff and how they should be interacted with. You can offer options for them. And if the behavior continues, then yes, the last resort would be to actually transfer care. And this is really important because the question here is, is this just about managing the patient or is this about managing the environment? And it's actually about both. And I wonder if we as physicians consider, what does it mean for me as a physician to be in a room being exposed to this behavior? And how does that translate to how I am able to ensure patient safety and ensure quality of care? And I'm not sure if people are thinking about that. What does it mean to be the recipient of this behavior and how that might affect my ability to perform my job? For that patient and, and other patients, what's the answer to that, right? Because if a patient's being racist, either to to the caregiver, to the provider, how can we, how can you be sure you're still giving them the best care possible? Like, how do you even start to... It's a, super, it's a superhuman ability, right? And, and I say this because the reality is we most often do. That is what we do. And I'm in the collective we, I'm a Black physician. That is what we do. There's been patients who wouldn't speak to me. They would not speak to me. And I had, I still sat with them and tried to talk to them, got a few word responses, but I had to supplement the care I was providing by working with my attending at the time. And, and you're a psychiatrist. Dad. So if the patient's not talking well, to you, it's not like well, <laughs> you're yeah. a nephrologist and you're going to be, you yeah. know, putting them in dialysis or something. No, I'm, and I'm very, I, I like to think I'm very charming, but like, they wouldn't speak to me. So what can I do? But I didn't necessarily fire the patient. The patient in that specific scenario was transferred by my attending because I'd gone on vacation and it, they realized in their interactions that the patient was entirely different and that this was really rooted in bigotry, their interactions with me. So um, anyway, the point here is that if you ask a physician who is non-white, have I ever provided care to a patient who is explicitly racist? They will say, yes, they have. And they will say, I did the best I could possibly do 
to, to provide care in that situation. But if we're being honest here, that's harmful to the physician. Like they're having to deal with the, the impact of that, of those aggressions, which often can result in race-based stress, can result in racial trauma at its most extreme. And they have to lick their wounds and still go back out there to treat patients another day. So that toll on the physicians, again, is not often talked about. And that's a part of the culture of medicine. We're just robots in this system that aren't supposed to respond to the environment in any way. We're just supposed to do our jobs. And that's not a reality in lots of ways, but specifically in this conversation, it manifests itself in how we are proactive about responding to patient racism. And a lot of times we aren't. We're just supposed to take it. So I think that statement actually answers my next question, but okay. let's see, which is, what do we do if we overhear something mm-hmm. racist being said by a patient? And we've been saying patients this whole time, but can I assume this yeah. applies to patients family members, and you also, you use the term guests. That's mm-hmm, someone mm-hmm. who's visiting who's not family. So patients, families, it right. doesn't matter who they are, this still applies, correct? Yeah, I think this idea of like when to intervene is really interesting because in lots of really serious, and not this isn't serious, but I mean like life or death situations, people will still walk past someone being just horribly assaulted in a number of different ways. And this idea of bystander response is a fascinating one psychologically, but we sometimes are just like conflict averse, nothing to see here, don't want to get involved. And that can really lead to people having to be on their own. And it's hard, right? Because you don't know what that person wants to do in that situation. Maybe they themselves want to ignore the, the, the comment and not say anything. But one, there might be like very strategic ways of doing that. So if someone says explicitly racist thing, I think it's appropriate in that situation to say, hey, that's not okay, and, and do the whole scripting. But sometimes if it's something like a little bit more subtle, you might ask the person, the target, hey, is there anything that I can do here to be helpful? And I, I think most of us will recognize that you recognize what just happened and you're trying to give us an out. There are just yeah. some way of, t- of tagging you into the situation to be helpful to us. And I say that because when someone says something, we can have a very strong reaction to that, or we can have a mild reaction. And when it's very strong, sometimes we don't know what to say. We're frozen or we want to run. So offering a helping hand or comment can help us get through the interaction. We only have a little time left, but I'd like to make a little foray into not talking about patients saying these things or their families or guests, but other physicians. So now the power balance is very different. If I go up to one of my partners and say, listen, this is the problem with what you just said here at ENT and Allergy Associates, where they're a partner with me, like (laughs) that, it's not going to have the same impact. So what can I do in that situation? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of resources for that, and and actually, that could be it can be dicey as far as how much we are nervous about challenging our peers, which in and of itself is a little bit problematic because what we're supposed to do is call each other in to be better, and this is a part of that. But there's so many scripts out there to choose from. I'll just name some. One, Diane Goodman, a social justice educator, which hopefully doesn't turn some people off, but that's what they are. They have a script, a few different options. Actually, I think about 15 for responding to bias comments. So if you Google um, responding to bias comments and then Diane Goodman, you'll find examples of her work. And what she offers you is a list, like a menu that you can choose from uh, that fits your personality. So there's things that you, you can use humor, for example, a way of saying, oh, I used to tell jokes like that, or you can actually reflect on your own experience. 
I used to tell jokes like that, but then I realized that they're hurtful to people. I don't do it anymore. And I ask you to, to stop too. Or you might ask people to clarify what they said. Hey, can you repeat back that um, thing that you just said again? I'm not sure if I heard it correctly. And sometimes hearing themselves say it can be really helpful for realizing how offensive it was. So she has about 15 different strategies for responding to those comments in the moment. So that's a really good resource. And then there's another one by Daryl Ling Sue, and that is entitled Micro Intervention, specifically for the people who are the target, for white allies, and for bystanders, like you were talking about before, people who overhear things. And his crew offers a number of different ways to name it, to disarm it, to offer education, and then to get additional support. So that's a really cool paper called Disarming Racial Microaggressions, Micro Intervention Strategies for Targets, White Allies, and Bystanders. And then for faculty from Yale, where I train, there's a really cool framework called the ERASE framework, and it stands for expecting events will happen, recognizing them when they do, addressing them in real time, supporting the learner after, and establishing a, a culture that's positive. I like this framework because it forces you to say, okay, I actually have to know these things are going to happen, and I have to be able to recognize them. So it encourages people to become in these interactions. But it also teaches you that you need to be able to address the situation in real time. And that means leveraging those frameworks I said before, like from Diane Goodman or from Gerald Wing Sue, to have a script about what you might say. But if we don't say anything, the culture is going to stay the same. So if we had more people calling it out, we would have better experiences for people who unfortunately have to suffer through these comments every day, which is so taxing. That would be my, my suggestion. And if it's scary to do, it's scary to operate, isn't it? It's scary to... When a person, you know, comes in for a trauma into the day, it's scary when I'm working with a patient who's acutely psychotic. Lots of things are scary, right? But we confront them as physicians all the time. So this really shouldn't be any different. And have a script. I think that's the theme of today is be prepared with a script. And and, and actually, that mm-hmm. I had an episode a couple of months ago with Anthony Garcia, difficult conversations. He's a neonatologist and mm-hmm. he's got a whole mm-hmm. method for having difficult conversations with patients when you're breaking bad news. And mm-hmm. one, one of the main takeaways from that was be prepared to know what you're going to say before you say it. Don't right. walk into that exactly. room just off the cuff. And so these things are going to happen and they're going to sneak up on us and we're going to be surprised by it. And unless we have something that we're prepared to say in advance, we're going to, we're going to end up freezing. So it sounds like the, the name of the game here is look at those, like Diane Goodman. What was the other, what were the other resources? Yeah. Diane Goodman responding to biased comments. And then the other one was Daryl Wing, Daryl Wing Sue, psychologist and colleagues wrote micro or disarming microaggressions. Micro intervention strategies for targets, white allies, and bystanders. And I don't, I really don't think you need anything else besides those. Those are pretty rich resources. And we'll definitely, we'll link to those in the show. This was fantastic because I came into this having no idea how to respond. And now I really do have a good framework. But one last situation. Let's say mm-hmm. the power, because we've always, we've done it from the situation of either physician to patient or physician. Or, or staff member to patient, or physician to physician. But let's say the power balance is switched, and now it's trainee to physician. I just that's such that medicine is so hierarchical that mm-hmm. I can't imagine being a, a trainee in that situation and being able to actually say something. 
Right. What What do you so, recommend? It's interesting because there's actually another framework <laughs> that is specifically geared towards students, and it's from Georgetown, and it's called hey, Stop, that's Talk, my and Roll. Alma mater. <laughs> yeah, Stop, Talk, and Roll. So you can Google um, Georgetown University, Stop, Talk, and they have a website, and there is a specific part of that framework that talks about if it's the attending physician. And what's important about this is recognizing the hierarchy is that you may not feel comfortable talking to the attending about what happened. And you can give you some script things to say. Hi, Dr. You know X, I want to talk about this comment that you made. Respectfully, you said X, Y, and Z. I felt that this was offensive to me or to these other people. I enjoy being a member of the team, but this comment made me very uncomfortable. And then the attending, of course, has to be professional enough to respond. But then they also have this option to not say anything at all and look to the Office of Student Affairs or the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and allow them to help you navigate the situation. And I'll say I was just a trainee <laughs> very recently, and challenging these comments came with advancement in my, my own power, so more as a PGY4 versus a, an intern. But there are so many things that just go by because of the power dynamic. So a lot of times it's just eating it or waiting to report it during an anonymous survey. So I would say for trainees especially, having those scripts can be really helpful, but also knowing what structural supports are available to you as you navigate what to do with that situation. Because sometimes you can be met with hostility and consequences for speaking up. So. Wow. This was, uh, this was, <laughs> we're going to include a lot in the show notes, everybody. So just uh, <laughs> make sure you check that out for all these great resources, including, and, and Dr. Isom, one more time, your new venture, where, what's the website? Where can people find you? Yeah, so wwwvision for the number four equity.com. And then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, which at Dr. Jess Isom, MD, MPH. Very long, but as a Black physician, I need to put all my credentials in there. So <laughs> so I'd love to um, talk with anyone who wants to explore this further. And the last thing I'll say is we actually did, myself and Dr. J. Corey Williams, a fellow psychiatrist, we did a CME for the American Psychiatric Association around this topic. And that is also available for free through the APA uh, website, which is psych.org. You have to have an account to access it, which is free. But there we have an hour-long CME that details some of these frameworks and also a case that illustrates these different points. Fantastic. Fantastic. Good luck with uh, Vision for Equity. And thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Take care. One last thing before we go. Remember Advice Media? Don't forget to schedule a demo with them to receive a $60 gift card and strategic insight on what your current online presence is doing or not doing for you. Contact Advice Media at drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.